welcome back to Nudie Reads, a classic podcast for my mother. She read to me when I was little, so now I'm returning the favour and you're welcome to listen along. It's Sunday and that means I'm reading a classic. Thursdays are for offbeat stuff, but whatever I'm reading, it's always great writing. Last episode, I had reason to use the word bubbles, and it got me to tonight's episode. I am reading from the classic work published 1841 by Scotsman Charles Mackay, Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds. And in particular, I'm reading from his chapter about the Dutch tulip mania of the early 17th century. Charles Mackay was a former journalist when he wrote his classic work, so it's very clearly and, I think, compellingly written. Volume 1 is about national delusions, and that's where we find the bubble of Dutch tulip mania, among other items. Volume 2 is about peculiar follies, and in there we find witch mania, focused on Europe, but with some material about the Salem witch nuttiness in the US, which I covered on this pod in Episode 3. Then Volume 3, the last one, is about philosophical delusions, and it includes those alchemists trying to make gold out of base metals with the old philosopher's stone. Charles Mackay plainly was a rationalist. He was put off by growing public nonsense, and moved enough to write about it all. So, let's begin. Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds by Dr. Charles Mackay Preface In reading the history of nations, we find that, like individuals, they have their whims and their peculiarities, their seasons of excitement and recklessness, when they care not what they do. We find that whole communities suddenly fix their minds upon one object and go mad in its pursuit, that millions of people become simultaneously impressed with one delusion and run after it till their attention is caught by some new folly more captivating than the first. We see one nation suddenly seized, from its highest to its lowest members, with a fierce desire of military glory, another as suddenly becoming crazed upon a religious scruple, and neither of them recovering its senses until it has shed rivers of blood and sowed a harvest of groans and tears to be reaped by its posterity. At an early age in the annals of Europe, its population lost their wits about the sepulchre of Jesus and crowded in frenzied multitudes to the Holy Land. Another age went mad for fear of the devil, and offered up hundreds of thousands of victims to the delusion of witchcraft. At another time, the many became crazed on the subject of the philosopher's stone, and committed follies till then unheard of in the pursuit. It was once thought a venial offence, in very many countries of Europe, to destroy an enemy by slow poison. Persons who would have revolted at the idea of stabbing a man to the heart drugged his pottage without scruple. Ladies of gentle birth and manners caught the contagion of murder until poisoning, under their auspices, became quite fashionable. 
Some delusions, though notorious to all the world, have subsisted for ages, flourishing as widely among civilised and polished nations as among the early barbarians with whom they originated. That of duelling, for instance, and the belief in omens and divination of the future, which seem to defy the progress of knowledge to eradicate them entirely from the popular mind. Money again has often been a cause of the delusion of multitudes. Sober nations have all at once become desperate gamblers and risked almost their existence upon the turn of a piece of paper. To trace the history of the most prominent of these delusions is the object of the present pages. Men, it has been well said, think in herds. It will be seen that they go mad in herds, while they only recover their senses slowly and one by one. Some of the subjects introduced may be familiar to the reader, but the author hopes that sufficient novelty of detail will be found even in these to render them acceptable, while they could not be wholly omitted in justice to the subject of which it was proposed to treat. The memoirs of the South Sea madness and the Mississippi delusion are more complete and copious than are to be found elsewhere, and the same may be said of the history of the witch mania, which contains an account of its terrific progress in Germany, a part of the subject which has been left comparatively untouched by Sir Walter Scott in his Letters on Demonology and Witchcraft, the most important that have yet appeared on this fearful but most interesting subject. Popular delusions began so early, spread so widely, and have lasted so long that instead of two or three volumes, fifty would scarcely suffice to detail their history. The present may be considered more of a miscellany of delusions than a history. A chapter only in the great and awful book of human folly, which yet remains to be written, and which Porson once jestingly said he would write in five hundred volumes. Interspersed are sketches of some lighter matters, amusing instances of the imitativeness and wrong-headedness of the people rather than examples of folly and delusion. Religious matters have been purposely excluded as incompatible with the limits prescribed to the present work. A mere list of them would alone be sufficient to occupy a volume. Chapter 2 the Tulipomania. The tulip, so named, it is said, from a Turkish word signifying a turban, was introduced into Western Europe about the middle of the 16th century. Conrad Gesner, who claims the merit of having brought it into repute, little dreaming of the commotion it was shortly afterwards to make in the world, says that he first saw it in the year 1559 in a garden at Augsburg, belonging to the learned counsellor Herwart, a man very famous in his day for his collection of rare exotics. The bulbs were sent to this gentleman by a friend at Constantinople, where the flower had long been a favourite. In the course of ten or eleven years after this period, tulips were much sought after by the wealthy, especially in Holland and Germany. Rich people at Amsterdam sent for the bulbs direct to Constantinople and paid the most extravagant prices for them. The first roots planted in England were brought from Vienna in 1600. 
Until the year 1634, the tulip annually increased in reputation until it was deemed a proof of bad taste in any man of fortune to be without a collection of them. Many learned men, including Pompeius de Angelis and the celebrated Lipsius of Leyden, the author of the treatise De Constantia, were passionately fond of tulips. The rage for possessing them soon caught the middle classes of society, and merchants and shopkeepers, even of moderate means, began to vie with each other in the rarity of these flowers and the preposterous prices they paid for them. A trader at Harlem was known to pay one half of his fortune for a single root, not with the design of selling it again at a profit, but to keep it in his own conservatory for the admiration of his acquaintance. One would suppose that there must have been some great virtue in this flower to have made it so valuable in the eyes of so prudent a people as the Dutch. But it has neither the beauty nor the perfume of the rose, hardly the beauty of the sweet, sweet pea. Neither is it as enduring as either. Cowley, it is true, is loud in its praise. He says, The tulip next appeared all over gay, but wanton full of pride and full of play. The world can't show a dye, but here has place. Nay, by new mixtures she can change her face. Purple and gold are both beneath her care, the richest needlework she loves to wear. Her only study is to please the eye and to outshine the rest in finery. This, though not very poetical, is the description of a poet. Beckman, in his History of Inventions, paints it with more fidelity, and in prose more pleasing than Cowley's poetry. He says, There are few plants which acquire through accident, weakness or disease so many variegations as the tulip. When uncultivated, and in its natural state, it is almost of one colour, has large leaves and an extraordinarily long stem. When it has been weakened by cultivation, it becomes more agreeable in the eyes of the florist. The petals are then paler, smaller and more diversified in hue, and the leaves often acquire a softer green colour. Thus, this masterpiece of culture the more beautiful it turns, grows so much the weaker, so that with the greatest skill and most careful attention it can scarcely be transplanted or even kept alive. Many persons grow insensibly attached to that which gives them a great deal of trouble, as a mother often loves her sick and ever-ailing child better than her more healthy offspring. Upon the same principle, we must account for the unmerited encomia lavished upon these fragile blossoms. In 1634, the rage among the Dutch to possess them was so great that the ordinary industry of the country was neglected, and the population, even to its lowest dregs, embarked in the tulip trade. As the mania increased, prices augmented until, in the year 1635, many persons were known to invest a fortune of 100,000 florins in the purchase of 40 roots. It then became necessary to sell them by their weight in parrots, a small weight, less than a grain. A tulip of the species called Admiral Leafkin 
weighing 400 perits, was worth 4,400 florins, and Admiral van der Eyck, weighing 446 perits, was worth 1,260 florins. A childer of 106 perits was worth 1,615 florins. A viceroy of 400 perits, 3,000 florins. And the most precious of all, a Semper Augustus, weighing 200 perits, was thought to be very cheap at 5,500 florins. The latter was much sought after, and even an inferior bulb might command a price of 2,000 florins. It is related that, at one time, early in 1636, there were only two roots of this description to be had in all Holland, and those not of the best. One was in the possession of a dealer in Amsterdam, and the other in Haarlem. So anxious were the speculators to obtain them, that one person offered the fee simple of 12 acres of building ground for the Haarlem tulip. That of Amsterdam was bought for 4,600 florins, a new carriage, two grey horses and a complete suite of harness. Hunting, an industrious author of that day, who wrote a folio volume of 1,000 pages upon the tulip mania, has preserved the folio wing list of the various articles and their value, which were delivered for one single root of the rare species called the Viceroy. Two lasts of wheat, four lasts of rye, four fat oxen, eight fat swine, twelve fat sheep, two hogshead of wine, four tons of beer, two tons of butter, one thousand pounds of cheese, one complete bed, a suit of clothes, a silver drinking cup. Total, 2,500 florins. People who had been absent from Holland, and whose chance it was to return when this folly was at its maximum, were sometimes led into awkward dilemmas by their ignorance. There is an amusing instance of the kind related in Blainville's Travels. A wealthy merchant, who prided himself not a little on his rare tulips, received upon one occasion a very valuable consignment of merchandise from the Levant. Intelligence of its arrival was brought to him by a sailor, who presented himself for that purpose at the counting-house, bales of goods in every description. The merchant, to reward him for his news, munificently made him a present of a fine red herring for his breakfast. The sailor had, it appears, a great partiality for onions, and seeing a bulb very like an onion lying upon the counter of this liberal trader, and thinking it no doubt very much out of place among silks and velvets, he slyly seized an opportunity and slipped it into his pocket, as a relish for his herring. He got clear off with his prize, and proceeded to the quay to eat his breakfast. Hardly was his back turned when the merchant missed his valuable Semper Augustus, worth 3,000 florins, or about 280 pounds sterling. The whole establishment was instantly in an uproar. Search was everywhere made for the precious route, but it could not be found. Great was the merchant's distress of mind. The search was renewed, but again without success. 
At last, someone thought of the sailor. The unhappy merchant sprang into the street at the bare suggestion. His alarmed household followed him. The sailor, simple soul, had not thought of concealment. He was found quietly sitting on a coil of ropes, masticating the last morsel of his onion. Little did he dream that he had been eating a breakfast whose cost might have regaled a whole ship's crew for twelve months, or, as the plundered merchant himself expressed it, might have sumptuously feasted the Prince of Orange and the whole court of the Stadtholder. Anthony caused pearls to be dissolved in wine to drink the health of Cleopatra. Sir Richard Whittington was as foolishly magnificent in an entertainment to King Henry V. And Sir Thomas Gresham drank a diamond dissolved in wine to the health of Queen Elizabeth when she opened the Royal Exchange. But the breakfast of this roguish Dutchman was as splendid as either. He had an advantage too over his wasteful predecessors. Their gems did not improve the taste or the wholesomeness of their wine, while his tulip was quite delicious with his red herring. The most unfortunate part of the business for him was that he remained in prison for some months on a charge of felony preferred against him by the merchant. Another story is told of an English traveller, which is scarcely less ludicrous. This gentleman, an amateur botanist, happened to see a tulip root lying in the conservatory of a wealthy Dutchman. Being ignorant of its quality, he took out his penknife and peeled off its coats with the view of making experiments upon it. When it was by this means reduced to half its size, he cut it into two equal sections, making all the time many learned remarks on the singular appearances of the unknown bulb. Suddenly, the owner pounced upon him, and with fury in his eyes, asked him if he knew what he had been doing. Well, peeling a most extraordinary onion, replied the philosopher. Hundred thousand duivel, said the Dutchman. It's an Admiral Van Eyck. Thank you, replied the traveller, taking out his notebook to make a memorandum of the same. Are these admirals common in your country? Death and the devil, said the Dutchman, seizing the astonished man of science by the collar. Come before the syndicate and you shall see. In spite of his remonstrances, the traveller was led through the streets, followed by a mob of persons. When brought into the presence of the magistrate, he learned to his consternation that the route upon which he had been experimentalizing was worth 4,000 florins, and notwithstanding all he could urge in extenuation, he was lodged in prison until he found securities for the payment of this sum. The demand for tulips of a rare species increased so much in the year 1636 that regular marts for their sale were established on the stock exchange of Amsterdam, in Rotterdam, Haarlem, Leiden, Alkmaar, Horn and other towns. Symptoms of gambling now became for the first time apparent. The stock jobbers, ever on the alert for a new speculation, dealt largely in tulips, making use of all the means they knew so well how to employ to cause fluctuations in prices. At first, as in all these gambling mania, confidence was at its height and everybody gained. 
The tulip jobbers speculated in the rise and fall of the tulip stocks and made large profits by buying when prices fell and selling when they rose. Many individuals grew suddenly rich. A golden bait hung temptingly out before the people and one after another they rushed to the tulip marts like flies around a honeypot. Everyone imagined that the passion for tulips would last forever and that the wealthy from every part of the world would send to Holland and pay whatever prices were asked of them. The riches of Europe would be concentrated on the shores of the Zuider Zee and poverty banished from the favoured clime of Holland. Nobles, citizens, farmers, mechanics, seamen, footmen, maidservants, even chimney sweeps and old clothes women dabbled in tulips. People of all grades converted their property into cash and invested it in flowers. Houses and lands were offered for sale at ruinously low prices or assigned in payment of bargains made at the tulip mart. Foreigners became smitten with the same frenzy and money poured into Holland from all directions. The prices of the necessaries of life rose again by degrees, houses and lands, horses and carriages, and luxuries of every sort rose in value with them, and for some months Holland seemed the very antechamber of Plutus. The operations of the trade became so extensive and so intricate that it was found necessary to draw up a code of laws for the guidance of the dealers. Notaries and clerks were also appointed who devoted themselves exclusively to the interests of the trade. The designation of public notary was hardly known in some towns, that of tulip notary usurping its place. In the smaller towns, where there was no exchange, the principal tavern was usually selected as the showplace, where high and low traded in tulips and confirmed their bargains over sumptuous entertainments. These dinners were sometimes attended by two or three hundred persons, and large vases of tulips in full bloom were placed at regular intervals upon the tables and sideboards for their gratification during the repast. At last, however, the more prudent began to see that this folly could not last forever. Rich people no longer bought the flowers to keep them in their gardens, but to sell them again at cent per cent profit. It was seen that somebody must lose fearfully in the end. As this conviction spread, prices fell and never rose again. Confidence was destroyed and a universal panic seized upon by the dealers. A had agreed to purchase 10 Semper Augustines from B at 4,000 florins each at six weeks after the signing of the contract. B was ready with the flowers at the appointed time, but the price had fallen to three or four hundred florins, and A refused either to pay the difference or receive the tulips. Defaulters were announced day after day in all the towns of Holland. Hundreds who, a few months previously, had begun to doubt that there was such a thing as poverty in the land, suddenly found themselves the possessors of a few bulbs, which nobody would buy, even though they offered them at one quarter of the sums that they had paid for them. The cry of distress resounded everywhere, and each man accused his neighbour. 
the few who had contrived to enrich themselves hid their wealth from the knowledge of their fellow citizens and invested it in the English or other funds. Many who, for a brief season, had emerged from the humbler walks of life were cast back into their original obscurity. Substantial merchants were reduced almost to beggary, and many a representative of a noble line saw the fortunes of his house ruined beyond redemption. When the first alarm subsided, the tulip holders in the several towns held public meetings to devise what measures were best to be taken to restore public credit. It was generally agreed that deputies should be sent from all parts to Amsterdam to consult with the government upon some remedy for the evil. The government at first refused to interfere, but advised the tulip holders to agree to some plan among themselves. The language of complaint and reproach was in everybody's mouth, and all the meetings were of the most stormy character. At last, however, after much bickering and ill-will, it was agreed at Amsterdam by the assembled deputies that all contracts made in the height of the mania, or prior to the month of November 1636, should be declared null and void, and that in those made after that date, the purchasers should be freed from their engagements on paying 10% to the vendor. Well, this decision gave no satisfaction. The vendors who had their tulips on hand were of course discontented, and those who had pledged themselves to purchase thought themselves hardly treated. Tulips which had at one time been worth 6,000 florins were now to be procured for 500, so that the composition of 10% was 100 florins more than the actual value. Actions for breach of contract were threatened in all the courts of the country but the latter refused to take cognizance of gambling transactions. The matter was finally referred to the Provincial Council at The Hague, and it was confidently expected that the wisdom of this body would invent some measure by which credit should be restored. Expectation was on the stretch for its decision, but it never came. The members continued to deliberate week after week and at last, after thinking about it for three months, declared that they could offer no final decision until they had more information. They advised, however, that in the meantime, every vendor should, in the presence of witnesses, offer the tulips in natura to the purchaser for the sums agreed upon. If the latter refused to take them, they might be put up for sale by public auction, and the original contractor held responsible for the difference between the actual and the stipulated price. Well, this was exactly the plan recommended by the deputies, and which was already shown to be of no avail. There was no court in Holland which would enforce payment. The question was raised in Amsterdam, but the judges unanimously refused to interfere on the ground that debts contracted in gambling were no debts in law. Thus, the matter rested. To find a remedy was beyond the power of the government. Those who were unlucky enough to have had stores of tulips on hand at the time of the sudden reaction were left to bear their ruin as philosophically as they could. Those who had made profits were allowed to keep them, but the commerce of the country suffered a severe shock, 
from which it was many years ere it recovered. The example of the Dutch was imitated to some extent in England. In the year 1636, tulips were publicly sold in the Exchange of London, and the jobbers exerted themselves to the utmost to raise them to the fictitious value they had acquired in Amsterdam. In Paris also, the jobbers strove to create a tulipomania. In both cities, they only partially succeeded. However, the force of example brought the flowers into great favour, and amongst a certain class of people, tulips have ever since been prized more highly than any other flowers of the field. The Dutch are still notorious for their partiality to them, and continue to pay higher prices for them than any other people. As the rich Englishman boasts of his fine racehorses or his old pictures, so does the wealthy Dutchman vaunt of his tulips. And that's where we'll leave it tonight. An extraordinary delusion about the value of a delicate flower and a national crowd mad about value as well as beauty. And wonderfully written in an almost avuncular way by a Scottish rationalist. I wonder if we're on the cusp at all of a similar mania involving non-fungible tokens. NFTs. You may have heard about them in the press. What are NFTs? I'm not even going to try to explain what they are, other than to say that they appear to be digital pictures, digital videos and digital audio recordings that have been rendered to include some details about ownership so that they're somehow more legally meaningful than the picture or the audio that you would be able to otherwise watch or enjoy on your laptop. The auction house Christie's is about to sell one. They're about to auction an NFT. And no, there will not be two men in tan cloth coats wheeling out a giant canvas or a sculpture. There is no physical thing to which the non-fungible token is glued or taped or inserted or otherwise attached. It's just a digital asset of some kind listed in some digital ledger somewhere and the ownership of that digital asset will pass to whoever has the winning bid when the auctioneer puts the hammer down. I don't really get it, although as I talk about it, I'm starting to get it. But I'll wager Charles Mackay would be a bit sceptical about NFTs if he was around today. At least about some of the mania for them. But let's park all that mania. Instead, I'm going to switch my focus to beauty. So join me next time when I explore loveliness. And in the meantime, do please share Nudie Reads with your friends and family who enjoy great writing read aloud on lots of different topics. And if you are so moved, do please rate it on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. And get in touch if you wish. Nudiereads at gmail.com and on Instagram, Nudiereads. Till next time, take care. It's slippery out there. And thanks for listening to Nudie Reads.